Hey everybody, welcome to the Ohio Bigfoot Podcast, OhioBigfootProject.com, Ohio Bigfoot Research and Investigation Center. And uh, tonight is the continuation of the Ohio Bigfoot Guide of Theories to the Language of Bigfoot. And I'm just going to jump right into it, per normal. So the first one we have is tree shaking. Now this is generally close quarters within line of sight. Tree shaking is also generally viewed as threatening or an excited animal. It is perceived as a warning that you're getting too close to a Bigfoot or its habitat. Now, if not witnessed, there are many reasons to shake different types of trees, such as nut trees, apple trees, peach trees, and so on, as a means of foraging. Um, This behavior is very familiar to the OBRC, as we have encountered it more than once. We've had a tree pushed over towards us and an entire wall of brush just shaking right behind us. But it always seemed like there was a little bit of a warning behind it to just go away. Um, we're going to get into the sounds now. The last one we didn't really get into voc- uh, vocalizations or verbals. So, the actual noises reported with Bigfoot activity. And this is where things get a little more interesting and a little more complicated. The first is uh, wood knocks. Wood knocks is probably the most heard noise associated with Bigfoot. Knocking is not just a nighttime activity as we learned in 2005 when we heard our first series of day knocks. Knocks are a mid-range level of communication. It can be used as a warning towards us researchers to go away, a warning to other Bigfoot that humans are around. It can also be used to communicate location. We don't know the level of Bigfoot's hearing. We don't know if it's like a wild turkey that can barely hear so everything is high-pitched or if it's like human hearing capability. I feel it's close to our hearing but slightly advanced like a person using a hearing amplifier. Tree knocks as a locator makes perfect sense with advanced hearing A single knock can tell you the general direction of the source, and yet a series of knocks can pinpoint location even more. So when we knock and a, a distance knock is heard, not only are we giving away our location to them, but they're giving away their location to us. Um... It's almost it's almost like a primitive Morse code is what I think of. Now one point I will make is that in the woods at night, sound carries a little further 
as there is less ambient noise interference. A wood knocks is simply taking a good sized stick or, and smacking a tree. It is a bass sound and thus the act not only creates noise but the sound waves on which the noise carries. Um, it's kind of kind of like a, I guess a sonic crack or a sonic boom but much much smaller scale. Again, unlike words, though, it can have multiple meanings and uses, but hearing one in the night is just something that is, it's just awesome. And the follow-up to Knox would be rock clacking. Now, this is a more close-range activity, unlike the dull base of a tree knock smacking two rocks together, can have more of a sharp crack. Imagine a tree knock as a shotgun being fired and a rock clack as a high-powered rifle. It's always more high-pitched treble. Um, usually has, um, well, it, it, it just travels well through the woods. Done softly, it can be very close range. But smack two rocks together and it can make your ears ring. It can be a substitute for wood knocking where there are plenty of rocks on the landscape. I know this may sound odd, but I have walked in some woods where there's actually, it's difficult to find rocks. So, yeah, it's just weird when you walk through those woods like that to think that you really can't find the rock it's just weird um these um these rock clacking let's see here they're well either way they have a much sharper crack and thus the sound is much sharper and it carries very, very well. Now, another sound to look at. Uh, it's probably one of the most rare heard ones for the OBRC. <clears throat> but it's teeth clacking. And this is extremely close-range sound. In the world of primates, some ape species will click their teeth together. Scientists believe this is a form of one of four things. Submission, which I'm rolling now. Appeasement, which I can totally dig as a friendly, fun gesture of pure curiosity. And affiliation, but my best guess is reassurance, meaning the dominant animal is pleased or there's a level of comfort. Maybe they're curious and just want us to know they're there. Um, but they'll click their teeth together. It's just a real weird, weird thing to hear in the woods. Um... Now, there could be a fifth use that would be uh, like a quiet dog barking, simply a warning to keep space in a non-threatening way, meaning you might be getting too close to the zone of comfort. But 
I've never had um, anything bad. Well, I've never had anything really bad happen, period, outside of a few times. But, um, yeah, the, the teeth clacking has never been... It's always felt friendly uh, shall put it that way I don't know how else to word it um, another one is whoops now these are loud short bursts of sound generally starting in low tone and ending in a high-pitched whip sound or oop sound uh, they're always short they never last more than usually I would say five seconds they are what I believe to be the verbal version of a tree knock. A communication of location. Possibly a communication call to return to the location of others' company. Kind of like how if you didn't get home by dark and your mom had to come out on the porch and yell for you, it's time to come in kind of thing. Um, then we get into whistles. And these are again close range, not heard far away. I feel these are simply a way of getting one's attention. They can be soft and low or loud and out of nowhere. Just ear piercing loud. Some of them, um, they could serve as a warning, but again, we will never know. Either way, I know that when I'm hunting with my buddy and I quietly whistle at him to get his attention to point out an animal without alerting the animal that we're hunting, it's a very effective tactic. So I think it's more of an intention an attention getter. Now the loudest of all vocalizations are the howls. These are long-range diversity. In the world of wildlife, the loudest calls serve three major purposes. The first is the mating call. Turkey, coyote, elk, moose, and more do this. Generally speaking, the female calls first, and then the male responds, but not always. It is literally a booty call. The second is a locator call. This is especially true with predatory animals, uh, pack animals, flock, herd. In my instance, I usually refer to packs. It's a way of calling the pack back together that may be scattered out hunting. Okay, you see, coyotes live in a very large pack, but they generally, generally hunt in singles or twos. The pack spreads out in all different directions, a good distance away from the dens. One or two will go north, south, east, west, northeast, southeast southwest they they don't run together unless they have like a um maybe a deer that's been hit by a car or something and then you hear that loud blasting howl and all the other coyotes run to where that howl came from and then they go take down the animal um <clears throat> 
coyotes coyotes definitely of all the animals I bow hunted has the broadest language diversity other than Bigfoot perhaps even more but it would be a very close second um, in the last episode I mentioned coyotes have the most complex language their family structure is equal to their language I could literally sit here and talk about coyotes for two hours and not even dent the surface with the language of coyote. And uh, the third for the how is the aggressive stance or hunt. Nothing has ever impressed me more than a coyote I once caught in a steel trap. Nothing, it knew it was going to die. It knew I was there to take it out. And yet it looked at me and it snarled and it proceeded to challenge me. And I was so profoundly moved by this. I did one of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life or even attempted. But I released that yoke from the steel trap. It was not an easy task, but I was so moved by this thing's last-second stance to just fight it out with me. You could just tell it, it definitely wanted to live, and I definitely wanted to kill it. I did. I was a trapper. I was a fur trapper. I had a coyote, but that one, yeah, I let that one walk. It was not not easy to do but something i definitely do not regret to this day was uh letting it go but um when a coyote a pack of coyotes is running down a deer they talk to each other as if they're coordinating it's an extremely impressive yet hair-raising scary at the same time when you realize how smart these animals are. This hunting communication is close to the aggressive stance, but it's, um, it's just different. I don't know how to describe it and without you actually seeing it. Now coyotes, they have community calls, aggressive sounds, passive sounds, submissive sounds, playful sounds, and more sounds, and more sounds, and more sounds. Every act they do in their daily lives, they have different sounds for. Just as the language of Bigfoot. Which, another one of those sounds is the gibberish. If you're familiar with the Sierra sounds heard this form of speaking I guess these sounds can be the most difficult to figure out as they can mean several different things pending temperament 
They can be even more confusing as they may sound aggressive to our own interpretation, but they're actually maybe fearful or playful or even trying to get our attention. Um, yeah, that gibberish that nobody knows, nor will we ever, but it's definitely an interesting sound if you ever hear it in the wild. Now, the one that I find the most absolutely curious about for me is the mocking. When they copy our whoops or uh, calls, or they copy our laughs, or they copy our owl calls, it's so odd that they choose to mimic us tone for tone when we're trying to mimic them. Um... Just because of that, much like humans, we mimic other animals when we hunt them. I can only assume that they do the same. Now, the funniest sound I've ever heard, and this is something that as the group of the OBRC, the, uh, the original group, we used to run around together back in the late 90s, early 2000s was the laugh <laughs> I, it um oh it's definitely the funniest sound i've ever heard in the woods their laugh has more than once had me doubled over on the ground holding my stomach because it hurt so bad from me laughing when i heard it uh, they have more than one sound of laugh but the one that killed me the most i mean absolutely floored me and I can't make this up, but it's pitch dark. Pitch, pitch dark. We're in the woods. And behind the trees, we hear what can only be described as Herman Munster laughing. I fell to the ground. It just had me floored. Um, now, another one is an actual just sounds like a monkey laughing like a chimp or a gorilla just an ape laugh it's um but still you hear it and it, it just tickles you and then the third and i can't think of anything in ohio by the way that would sound like herman munster laughing in the woods or that ape laugh but the third is the giggles and it is, oh, it's just a funny giggle. It's, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just a funny giggle, but it's super, super awesome to hear. But that one that sounded like Herman Munster laughing in the trees, oh, that almost killed me. I thought I was going to die. I was laughing so hard. Now, one part of the Bigfoot language again, that you would not think of as language, is their smell. Many wildlife animals use their scent to mark territory, find a mate, <clears throat> and even as warfare. They rub their odors on trees. Some animals can increase their scent via glands. Bigfoot is described as a wet dog and bad B.O. smell just a foul smell 
it's a scent that burns into your brain if you ever smell it. It reminds me personally of a soaking wet goat and dirty socks is what it reminds me of. Uh, the more humid the climate, it seems, the worse the smell is. Um, it just seems to be that way. A simple scent smear, though, can last a good while on an object or a surface in the woods, which, again, could point to um, a, a use of tree structures as scent makers. Um, in fact, all these forms of communication can be cross-related. But the smell, I think they, they absolutely use it to their advantage and as a form of communication. And then the final thing that I would include in their language that's not language, but it has telltale clues, is the eye shine. Most sighting reports are reported to see red eye shine. Well, that could actually be strictly just angle. If you notice some pictures, even humans can have the red eye shine. We have red eye reducer on cameras. Deer can have green, yellowish, white, orange, or red. Um, eye shine primarily has to do with the angle of the, the source of light versus the angle of the eyes. Take a deer, for instance. If a deer is down in a ditch low and you're looking downward at it, you can get a yellowish white eye shine to yellow. And then if they're more eye level with you, you can get more of a greenish eye shine. But if a deer is on a hillside and you're looking upwards at it, it can actually have reddish or orange eye shine. If it's uphill looking above the camera, it, it, it'll be red, 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 red uh, up above the light. <clears throat> um, if it's above the camera but looking downwards, you can get kind of a whitish eye shine. So if you see eye shine at night and it's any color but red, then it's not necessarily a Bigfoot, but it's not necessarily not a Bigfoot. Because a Bigfoot can also be white, yellow, red, green, blue, or orange. It also depends on the dilation of the eye and the pigment. Humans range from brown eyes to green eyes to hazel to amber to uh, blue. Well, I would imagine Bigfoot can range as well from dark brown to amber to... Um, maybe some type of green however some primates can have blue eyes it's rare in the world of primates but it's not unheard of and this means that red eyes doesn't mean it is a bigfoot and any other color doesn't mean it isn't a bigfoot so when you're seeing eye shine you know, if you say, oh, nope, 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 that's that's green eye shine. That's not a Bigfoot. Well, if it's at eye level or perhaps a little lower and looking upward, yeah, it absolutely could be a Bigfoot. If it's white, 
It can be laying down yellowish. If it's whitish yellow, it can be uphill above you or just standing upright, but the eyes looking downward. So, yeah, eye shine varies. Just because it isn't red doesn't mean that it's not a Bigfoot. So, that concludes um, the Ohio Bigfoot guide of theories to the language of Bigfoot. And that concludes this podcast. Well, this episode. Be putting out another one soon. I'm trying to get the old group together and um, get the guys to do a podcast with me so you'll hear more than just me talking and uh, do some podcasts with some others as well. Um, Something I'm working on. So, you know, I'm just getting back into this, but it is going to happen. So, it's in the works. But anyways, have a great night. I hope you all had a happy Halloween. Um, For me right now, it is Halloween. It's Halloween night. So, and I went out, did a few wood knocks, did some calls and listened. Uh, One thing I would suggest about that, if you're going into wildlife areas looking for Bigfoot, remember it's bow season. And in the state of Ohio, if you disrupt purposely a hunter's hunt, it's actually against the law. Now, if it's accidental, of course, it was an accident, but... So, from here until spring, I pretty much won't be doing any day activity, or at least very little. 99.999% of everything I do from now till spring will be after the sun goes down. So, I'll do some day hikes in hiking areas, you know, public, but non-wildlife areas, whatnot. I... I hate having my hunts disturbed. I don't want to disturb someone else's. So primarily everything I do from now till spring will be done at night. So if y'all want to sit by a campfire some night, you know, hey, get a hold of me. Ohio underscore Bigfoot at yahoo.com. Ohio Bigfoot Research at gmail.com. You can get a hold of me through the website. And if you ever just want to sit by a fire some night in the woods and listen, you know, I'm I'm game on the weekend. So, yep, everyone have a great week and I'll get a, we'll see you next time. Hey everybody, welcome to the Ohio Bigfoot Project, Ohio Bigfoot Research and Investigation Center podcast, or the Ohio Bigfoot Podcast. Tonight's episode comes via an email that uh, was sent to me, and I was asked to elaborate on it a little more, and it's about looking for Bigfoot in popular areas, meaning areas that are popular for Bigfoot enthusiasts, how do you uh, research that? Well, many times I have made the 60.5-mile drive to Salt Fork State Park. I leave the house at 5 p.m. I stop off at the Coshocton Walmart for supplies, 
and arrived mid-park at 6.15 to 6.30 p.m. Depending on how long I shop at Walmart or how long the lines are at Walmart. P.S. Since I have now mentioned Walmart three times on this award-winning podcast, I expect the check to be in the mail. <laughs> now, every time I would go to the park, I would follow the exact same routines up until things got crazy, Monster Quest, all that. And uh, then I started using other tactics to search for Bigfoot at SFSP. You see, when a park starts having the gift shop fill up with Bigfoot everything, the location is used for a Bigfoot conference, and you name a campground Bigfoot Ridge, it happens to be that you attract Bigfoot enthusiasts hoping to see the creature. You create a lure for people interested in Bigfoot to draw them into the park. Now, this happens to be very effective, and it does just that. However, that can also lead to ruined outings. As I said before, I've had people set up spotlights and all kinds of crazy things. I'm not even going to begin to start on the ruined outings. But, first let's look at why. <clears throat> why pick... SFSP as the epicenter for Ohio when it comes to Bigfoot. Well, first off, it does have a very long history of sightings and activity. So, that's the main reason. But why? Why would Bigfoot continue to visit an area <clears throat> where it appears... We, as humans, are hunting them, almost. <clears throat> well, first and foremost, we raise the curiosity. When all summer long, you have people, um, calls, sound blasting, doing wood knocks. If Bigfoot truly is a curious creature, then he's going to be drawn by the curiosity of all this sounds. Not to mention, he could be looking for, or she, looking for other Bigfoot, and our imitations happen to lure them there. Now, another main reason is the food. Many times I have heard that we have invaded the wild territory of America building cities and displacing wildlife by moving into their own front yards. I have always questioned the validity of this, as I think there might be a bit of a twist to this century-old tale. Places like SFSP and the air around it is filled with the smell of hot dogs, bacon, eggs, coffee, hamburgers, marshmallows, steak, ribs, fried chicken, you name it. <clears throat> now, when I did, when I was a fur trapper, and I still trap off and on from time to time, but, and uh, in the 
mid-70s, early 70s, there was a boom in fur prices. So, if that was to ever happen to again today, like, let's say raccoon furs were going for $20, you know, I'm not going to go trap in the woods. I'm going to go trap right behind that long line of restaurants in Cleveland and Cincinnati and Columbus. I'm going after those city coons because those city coons raid dumpsters and they get fat. They're attracted there by food. Okay, same thing as a a, a a panhandler, you know, we've all seen the people by the side of the road, please help, and they have their hat out, you know. Well, if you gave them a choice, and they could either stand on a county road or the crossroads of a city, which do you think they prefer? They're going to go to the city because there's more people, there's more handouts, so, with that, you could think of two class of uh, wildlife, or Bigfoot. The blue-collar Bigfoot, and then the bums looking for a free handout. You know, you have Bigfoot out walking a hillside, picking up walnuts, picking berries, eating this plant, eating that plant. Or he can just, much like a bear, go get into a dumpster and fill up in a matter of minutes so that could be an attractant because let's not forget all this happens in a state park in the middle of the woods <clears throat> I mean think of uh, think of, of a mom with her three kids she unloads them from a car goes over puts a uh, bag of charcoal on the grill lights it and you got two bigfoot standing off in the woods you know now if she pulls out the oscar meyer you know that yellow and red package i'm gonna jump out and say oogity boogity and that lady's gonna grab her kids and run for the car no 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 i'm only gonna do that if she has those red package bar s hot dogs we all know the bar s are the bomb so if she pulls out the bar s then we'll scare her and her three kids and she's gonna run away with her kids throw them in the car get out of there and leave all those hot dogs up there on that grill which by the way bar s and oscar meyer you both now owe me money but um for the mention but yeah, I mean, think about it like that. Okay, it's the sense of food. It's the the smells is twenty four seven, and with this stuff being cooked over a fire, heat rises, the scent lifts, gets up into the atmosphere, the air cools it, the scent, the the cooling air pushes that scent back down, and so that scent can literally travel a very long way. Um, that is just a food attractant, and you put that on top of the knocks, the whistles, the sound blasting, and the curiosity of the animal, and that's why they're going to flock to Salt Fork. 
or any other place where you do that, really. So, where do you look among amid the the chaos? Well, you could go to those popular areas, Bigfoot Ridge, Hossack's Cave, uh, the Stonehouse Loop Trail, the Handicap Picnic Area, the trail around the Horseman's Camp that everybody and their brother does. But there are back areas into the park. And then there's little slivers of even more back areas on the very outskirts of the park. But then there's another tactic that I like to do. And um, it's the back back areas. I like to look for navigable creeks and travel corridors and by being navigable water you can canoe it you can kayak it you can get back further where most people aren't going to hike because all that area outside of the park is private land so you're not allowed to walk through it but if it's floatable water there's nothing illegal stopping you from kayaking or canoeing it you're allowed to it, it's there's a law about it about navigatable water in the state of ohio okay so that's one thing but then the other is the uh, straight line 10 mile travel corridor david bell invented parkour in 1990 after being influenced by his Parisian father, who laid the foundation for the fluid of movement, who used parkour as a firefighter to get from point A to point B with the fire hose or the fire line without kinking it. So parkour was actually invented by firemen. Well, when you put that in the aspect of Bigfoot, and you walk in a straight line, if you go up and over the hill, it's going to be quicker or a shorter distance traveled in the long, as the crow flies in the long run, than going out and around the mountain and coming back over. And Bigfoot, let's face it, is an overland creature. He's designed for overland. So... If you look within a X mile radius, let's say 10 miles, and you find a uh, public wildlife area, a hunting area, the majority of that area sees use for one week of the year during deer gun season. That's when it's 99.999% the busiest. Outside of that, it's used about probably 30 to 40% for bow hunters, squirrel hunters, things like that. But after hunting season, those places are, no one goes there. It, it's They're just very rarely used. So those little pocket public wildlife areas or hunting areas 
don't see humans through the summer. They see humans over the fall and the winter. And after gun deer season, which is always the Monday after Thanksgiving, Monday through Saturday or Sunday, and then I think two weeks later, there's another two-day weekend, Saturday and Sunday of gun deer. And after that, because uh, they're void, because a lot of bow hunters won't go out immediately after gun deer season. Some say the deer is spooked. Some say it doesn't change them at all. I'm not getting into that because this isn't a bow hunting podcast. I'm simply approaching Bigfoot as a bow hunter. <clears throat> but those areas don't get used. So if you find a public wildlife area just a few miles away from a state park, which is not abnormal, to find these little pocket 40, 300, 400, 500 acre, 1,000 acre areas, um, yeah, that I mean, that's a great place to look because knowing that no one uses them during the summer... If I was a Bigfoot and I wanted to lay low and avoid humans, that's where I'm going to spend the majority of my time. And then when I start to get hungry, hungry, you know, I'll snack on all the, the local native foliage and whatnot. But then move into the park, raid some dumpsters. Uh, people are... You know, let's face it, we leave a lot of food in the woods, you know, and uh, get attracted to those smells and the sounds, and then peel back out to the public hunting or public wildlife area, which is literally a ghost town. There's nobody there. It's like a little safe sanctuary. And then expand that range, you know, 15 miles, 20 miles, 25 miles. Until you find the closest, and then the next closest, and the most direct approach yields the fastest result. Because Bigfoot is designed for overland travel. So if you find that little back area, and you, let's say the handicapped, picnic area at Salt Fork. It's had a lot of activity, a lot of sightings over a year, over the years. So you put a pin there, and then you put a pin in the, uh, the public wildlife or the back area, and you put a string straight across those pins, and then under, and then from the left and the right of that string, you look for the the most concealed method of travel. Is there a low-lying creek? Um, a way to avoid houses? Um, you know, maybe cutting through standing corn fields because standing corn, my wife once seen a black object about three foot over top of the corn driving down the road. Uh, she didn't get a very good look, unfortunately, but, you know, that, A, it's a food source, B, it's a travel corridor, 
see it attracts other wildlife, which adds to the food source. But those back areas, those point A to point B, between a place where there's a lot of activity reported over the years to those back areas, straight line, fish a little left and right of that line, you know, let's say two and a half miles in each direction to find the most concealed possible way that you could travel from A to B. And then those little back areas are the places to look at. But the you want to get further away from the pen where all the activity is because that's also where all the people flock to. And sadly, that's where you're going to have hoaxers, people leaving footprints, things like that. And I've been there, done that too. So, yeah, I almost had a lynch mob attack me one time when I told him it was a BS footprint at Salt Fork State Park that was in the sand but during a conference weekend. But, yeah, <laughs> uh, good times, good times. But, yeah, that point A to point B, and then finding those back areas, and then running that string across the two pens, and then putting a wide swath around that that line to find the most concealed method of or path of travel. That's the places you want to go to. That's how I research popular areas. Is I look for the rings around it. Don't go to the the main. I mean, yes, go to the main areas, see them, get an idea. What's the attraction? Well, let's see here. There's three or four barbecue grills there. That's where people go to picnic. Okay, food source. There's the attraction. <clears throat> now, let's say was coming in here as a food source. Well, now where do I want to go that I can hide and sleep? That's the places you want to look for. And that's how I research popular areas known for Bigfoot activity that draw an abnormally large amount of Bigfoot enthusiasts. There is some crazy things that you'll find at Salt Fork State Park. And yes, it is a very active area. It still is to this day. But, and I'm not going to tell you my areas, but... Well, I would some of them give you a, a, not publicly over a podcast, but if you emailed or whatnot, yeah, I would give you a couple places to check out. But yeah, those, those little hidden gym back areas are the ones that you want to look for. And, uh, that's how I research popular areas. It's by starting at the most popular point, finding the most reclusive back areas, pin to pin, piece of string in the middle, find my travel corridor. It's actually pretty simple, but it's effective too. Uh, I'm going to wrap that up for this podcast. Uh, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed. 
Uh, next podcast, I'll talk about, well, actually, there's nothing. The Virginia trip itself was absolutely amazing. It was awesome going back to the old property. But when I say it was a dead night, except for a little bit of owl chatter early in the evening, which was questionable, but, I mean, it was a graveyard dead not a sound, not a whisper of wind, not the rattle of the leaves and the trees. I mean, dead, spooky-ass, quiet, dead, dead, dead night. But, yeah, I'm going back December 10th, I think. Um, possible, anyways. If not, I'm going to be doing a different expedition. But, yeah, that's it for this podcast, short one. Um, I try to keep them all pretty short. But I hope that answered your question on how I search popular areas for Bigfoot. Have a great night, everybody. Get out there into the woods. Remember, it's OhioBigfootProject.com.